This morning, we're going to look at our God-given responsibility toward the poor and the downcast in our society, and especially in the body of Christ. And once again, this is no small topic in Scripture. It's an exceedingly common theme in the Bible from cover to cover. When I was involved in an inner city ministry years ago, the guy that led the ministry (laughs) made an interesting comment. He said, we got, in terms of categories of theology, we got eschatology and theology proper and soteriology and all that. He said, we should have a category called povertology. If you look at the at the real estate in Scripture that's devoted to the issue of poverty and the care for the poor, it deserves its own category. And I thought that was interesting. Uh, <clears throat> I think there's a lot of truth to that. Why are there so many poor people in the world? Well, among some folks here in America and among many worldwide, America's material prosperity is viewed as the root cause of many other people's lack of prosperity. There seems to be an increasingly popular notion that the excesses of capitalism are to blame for much of the poverty that we see. Now, I'm not going to spend any time this morning attempting to refute that understanding, but I have an article here that was written by our own Don Grimm called Fighting Poverty. And... It very, very compellingly makes that the opposite case. Uh, if anyone wants a copy of that paper, I've got a couple of paper copies and I've got an electronic Word ver- Microsoft Word version I can send to you. I think it should be required reading in every high school in America, personally. I am not saying and would not say that capitalism is God's preferred economic system. And I would never say that it's the cure-all for poverty. You know what the cure-all for poverty will be? The return of Jesus Christ. There are many causes for poverty, and every last one of them is tied to sin and to the curse of sin that reigns in this world until Jesus returns. In an age when technology and means of production make it attainable for every human being to be well-fed, Things like greed and corruption and factions and war, particularly in underdeveloped nations, have left a wake of grievous poverty and hunger that generally touches us Americans only in the form of pictures of malnourished children printed on solicitations from various relief organizations. Here in our own backyard, greed and selfishness within families often leave elderly and infirm to fend for themselves when they're least able to do so. And a firmly entrenched entitlement mentality in America has produced generation after generation of people who believe that the provisions to cover their basic needs are owed to them by someone else, along with cable TV and broadband internet and central heat and air and cell phones. So they do little or nothing to act as instruments of provision for their own needs. And a wholesale disregard for God's design for sex in marriage has led to an unprecedented number of children born to single moms who then struggle to make ends meet. By the way, did you know that Over 45% of all single mothers today have never been married. And that 20 years ago, that number was 1 in 10. 
That's a, a symptom of a culture that has cast aside God and godliness. Poverty is the result of sin. But poverty is not a modern-only phenomenon. It's as old as sin itself. And so is God's assignment to his people to care for the poor. God is the advocate for the poor and oppressed, and he's the one who commands us to take care of the poor. Deuteronomy 15.11 says, For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. When I did a search, a word search for the words widow, orphan, alien, foreigner, and the plurals of those words, I got 219 hits in the Bible. A great many of those passages talk about the responsibility of God's people to take care of those who are downcast, who are at a disadvantage in our culture. In fact, James, in James 1.21, says, this is pure and undefiled religion. And what he's talking about is caring for widows and orphans, for those who are at a disadvantage. God advocates for the poor and oppressed. And so his assignment to us is based on his own character. God is the preeminent advocate for the poor and for the downcast. Psalm 113, verses 4 to 9, The Lord is high above all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. God is perfectly holy, he is all powerful. And he's exalted above all of his creation, and yet he reaches down and lifts up those who are afflicted in this world. This declaration about God pervades the Bible. Read Mary's amazing words to Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, a passage that's referred to as the Magnificat. Read the song of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, who incidentally quotes from the verses in that passage are probably vice versa. It's amazing how much those two women's songs of thanksgiving to God have in common, even though they're separated by more than a thousand years. And the focus of both is that God humbles the exalted and exalts the humble. Psalm 140, verse 12 I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Yahweh will maintain the cause of the afflicted. Now, as soon as you point out (laughs) that the Bible presents God as the zealous advocate and protector for the poor, somebody's going to say, well, then he's not doing a very good job of it, is he? Because there are a whole lot of poor people in the world. Some are even dying because they are so poor. Where is God's zealous advocacy for the poor? Well, I want to 
deal with that as head-on as I can. And I'm convinced that God's resolution to what looks to men like a dilemma demands that we see a few critical realities as God presents them, not as we are prone to see them. If God promises to take care of the poor and oppressed, why don't we see that happening? First, the world is still under the curse. And that includes everything associated with the curse of death, pain, illness, poverty, corruption, decay, and of course all manner of sin. The reversal of the curse is perhaps the central theme of Scripture with Christ as its focus. The reversal of the curse was made certain at the cross, but it will not be fully realized until Christ returns. If you think the curse has been put away in practice, look around a little bit and tell me what aspect of the curse do we not still see. Until Christ returns and the curse is ended, we are God's agents to care for the poor and hurting because we are God's agents to point men to the King and to the coming kingdom. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that passage goes on to command us as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from worldliness and to keep our behavior excellent among unbelievers. How will lost people come to know about our King and about His kingdom? Through our words and our deeds. That's God's design. That's agency. We who are already citizens of the coming kingdom have been called by God to be His agents to proclaim both the King and the kingdom. And a critical part of that calling is that we are the agents of God's advocacy for the poor and downtrodden. We are His instruments for loving and healing and helping and meeting material needs. Could God do it without us? Absolutely. He could have named the animals in the Garden of Eden without Adam. But agency is a part of God's design through all of human history. And guys, we are His agents. Proverbs 14.31 He who oppresses the poor reproaches his Maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him, honors God. What we are called to do in our treatment of the poor and downtrodden is to copy God. To act in keeping with His intention to lift up those who are cast down. And when we do that, we honor God. Which means we don't just acknowledge in ourselves who God is. It means we proclaim in the sight of others who God is. To honor God means not only to acknowledge His value, but to spread the knowledge of His value. Now we have only the brief length of our time on this fallen earth to show men the coming king and the coming kingdom. There's a song by Casting Crowns that I find very humbling. It's called, If We Are the Body. Many of you know it, especially the young, young folks. It says, if we are the body, why aren't his arms reaching? Why aren't his hands healing? Why aren't his words teaching? And if we are the body, why aren't his feet going? Why is his love not showing them 
There is a way. There is a way. You and I are called to give this world a vivid preview of the kingdom that is coming and of the character of its king, just as that very king did when he was here the first time. To show men God's glorious intention and promise through Christ alone to put away sin through His perfect sacrifice and to put away the curse of death and pain and suffering that came into the world because of sin. Now, we can't expect those who do not know God and who do not believe His promises to get this, but we certainly need to get this. When we, as God's redeemed, look around us and we see all the horrific pain and suffering that is the fallout of man's sin, and we say, why isn't God doing something about this? God says to us, why aren't you? Until my son returns, God says, in effect, you are what I am doing about this. If we set aside God's assignment to us to act as the vessels, as the instruments of His truth, of His righteousness, of His grace, of His love and compassion and mercy, we do so knowing that our window of opportunity is rapidly shrinking. All right, let me kind of recap. If God promises to take care of the poor and oppressed, why don't we see that happening? First, the world is still under the curse. Second, until the curse is reversed, we are God's agents to point men to the king and the coming kingdom, and that means we are God's advocates for the poor and the downtrodden. And the third point in this is our assignment is time-bound. If we do not fulfill... God's assignment to us to act as His agents in caring for the poor and downtrodden, we can rest assured God will not fail to do so. There is no greater advocate for those who are humbled and hurting in this life than God. And He's going to prove it beyond any doubt. He alone will put an end to death and disease and poverty and pain. Look at Isaiah 25, verse 8, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, Revelation 21, verse 4. He's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. His reckoning, His writing of all things is indeed coming. But it has not come yet. And until it does, we are the world's picture of the King and we are the world's preview of the kingdom. Until then... We are God's vessels to show men the king first and then the way his kingdom works. Now, how we treat the poor and the downtrodden is central to this witness that God has of his king and his kingdom through his redeemed. Now, I also want to talk about this idea of being time-bound. Here's the critical difference between our assignment and God's promise. Our assignment is temporary. God's promise is eternal. God sees and He acts with all of eternity in clear view. And we need to understand this. God's promise is not to right every wrong here and now. Did Jesus have the power to end hunger while He was here? Did He have the power to heal every disease and to put an end to poverty while he was here? You bet he did. 
But that's not what he that's not what he did, right? Why? When he came the first time, he did not come to usher in the reversal of the curse. He came to accomplish the reversal of the curse, and he came to seek and save the lost. He paid the eternal penalty for, for the sin of all who believe in him, and he made certain that the end of the curse will come to pass. Now this preview of the kingdom that men behold through us means nothing until men are rightly related to the king. Destroying the barrier that sin created between men and God was our Lord's first priority, and it must be ours as well. In Matthew 26, there's a very interesting statement Jesus makes. This is, of course, Jesus is in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. You know the story. A woman, a poor woman, by all accounts, came to Jesus with a vial of very expensive perfume. And she poured it upon his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples disciples were indignant. And they said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done good to me. For the poor you will have with you always, but you do not always have me. What a profoundly important statement. Jesus, the very one who will put an end to poverty and oppression, quotes a passage from Deuteronomy that says the poor you will always have with you. And interestingly, in that passage, the next statement is that Israel is commanded to take care of the poor. But Jesus' next statement is, you do not always have me. The first priority is on knowing Jesus Christ. Even as we keep God's assignment to care for the poor and oppressed, we must always be clear that real life and real blessing are not about material provision. They're about relationship with Jesus Christ. We are to point men to Jesus and we are to call them to trust in Him and then to follow Him. And who is it that they are to follow? (laughs) Randy Alcorn in this book, I'll, point, I'll show it to you again, great book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, pointed out that prosperity theologians love to say to Christians, you need to learn to live like the son of a king. Well, guys, who is the preeminent son of the king? And how did he live? He became poor that we might become rich with real wealth. How about his closest followers? How wealthy were they, the disciples? In Luke 9, 58, Jesus said to one who asked him, one who declared to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, okay, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Fine. Great. Follow me. That's what you're going to get. And when... And when you follow Jesus Christ, you get wealth that makes the richest men on this earth look like paupers pushing grocery carts. Why are so many people poor? Sin. (laughs) God advocates for the poor and oppressed, and he does it through us as his agents. Proverbs has a lot to say about the blessings that God has in store for us if we keep this assignment versus the curses If we don't, I'm just going to read a few passages and we'll kind of look at them together. 
Proverbs 14.21, we saw this earlier. He who despises his neighbor's sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. By the way, the word happy there is the word blessed. It's the word that starts many psalms that say, Blessed is the man who... Proverbs 19.17, He who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Proverbs 21.13, He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and will not be answered. Proverbs 22.9, He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. Proverbs 22.16, He who oppresses the poor to make much for himself or who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. And Proverbs 28.27, He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. Now, if you look back at the specific actions of the two kinds of people in these verses, You see that the godly man or woman gives some of his food to the poor. He gives money to the poor. The ungodly man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor. He oppresses the poor to make himself rich. And when he does give, he gives to the rich. He shuts his eyes. When God commands us to be gracious to the poor, what he means in practical terms is that we are to give generously of every resource that God has put into our hands to those who don't have those resources. And when we do, we enjoy great blessing from the hand of God. If we don't, we'll suffer great loss from His hand. Now, whose needs should you try to address? There are needs all around us, and if you keep looking and look further and further, you're going to find more and more needs. It becomes overwhelming very quickly. If we have no way to determine which of the needs that we see are those that God intends us to meet, surely He knows we can't meet you and I, can't meet all of them. There's some very important things that I believe we find in God's words in this regard. Our first responsibility is caring for the household of the faith. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. I'm just going to, for, this, for time's sake, read verse 10. It says, So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Passage we read at the beginning, 1 John 3. To whom are we supposed to give in this passage? says, we know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. If you look through the book of Acts, especially chapter 4, And through Paul's letters to the churches, especially 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you'll see an amazingly consistent pattern when it comes to what was done with money given by believers to care for the poor and afflicted. 
that money overwhelmingly went to care for the needy within the church, not for the needy outside the church. And that principle seems to hold over from the Old Testament. By the way, this is the passage that Jesus quoted when he was in Bethany. If there is a, this is Deuteronomy 15, start at verse 7. If there is a poor man with you, with you, one of your brothers, that means an Israelite, a covenant son, in any of your towns in your land in which the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. But you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. And by the way, when you did a loan, you didn't get to collect interest. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. Now that included in Israel the foreigners who were in the land, who had been received into the covenant community. They had to eat what Israelites ate. They had to participate in the worship. They had to keep the same ordinances and law if they were going to live in the, in the camp of Israel. So they were proselytes, meaning they had been brought in to the community of God's people. Now, why would God have it this way? This sounds backwards, doesn't it? Isn't it a selfish approach for us as Christians to take caring for the needs of our fellow Christians as a higher priority than caring for the needs of unbelievers? Well, it's about God's strategy rather than men's. In Matthew 6 and in many other places in Scripture, it's clear that God knows that we have physical needs during our time on this, on this earth, and He's committed to meeting those needs for whom? For those who seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Which is more important from God's perspective, man's temporary need for food and clothing and shelter or man's need for the eternal life that consists of relationship with Him? I contrast two strategies for evangelism for drawing lost men and women into that life of faith, that life of relationship with God. Here's the first strategy. Caring for the physical and financial needs of poor and oppressed unbelievers in order to gain a foothold for sharing the gospel. That's a very popular approach among many Christian organizations. Here's the second strategy. Loving the saints... Believers, including caring for the physical needs of poor believers as God's witness of His Son. Let me explain where I get that and where I'm going. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus is in the upper room. He's speaking to His disciples just before He's betrayed into the hands of the Jewish officials and taken away to be crucified. And he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So our love, active love for each other, shows men who we are, but it also shows men who he is. In his high priestly prayer, the night he was betrayed into the hands of those who would execute him, 
Jesus prayed to his Father. In verse 20, starting in verse 20, he said, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, in other words, his disciples that were with him, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, in order that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me. What does that mean, that the world would know that the Father sent the Son? Well, it means that the world would know who this man is. That he is, he is the Son of Almighty God, sent from heaven, sent down to us. He's the promised one, the Messiah of God, the anointed one, who would bear the sins of men. Isaiah 53 was read this morning. They would know who Christ is. Which is better? Our strategy for creating opportunities to share the gospel or God's strategy for showing men who His Son is? There's a very good reason that so much of what's said in Scripture about caring for the material needs of men focuses on His people caring for His people. If we get this wrong, we're replacing perfect strategy with the flawed one. Which one do you think God will bless most powerfully? His or ours? Galatians 6 verse 10 again that we saw before said, so then while we have opportunity, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Before we look outside our own body, uh, let me bounce back here because I'm getting ahead of myself there. Before we look outside our own body, I believe that we should be sure first that there is no one who has a genuine material need that's still unmet within our body. And then we should have our eyes open for other churches we know about that are struggling to meet the needs of their people. I think that applies both individually and corporately. What if we adopted a sister church in inner city Dallas or even in a a third world country, and gave close and prayerful attention to how God might want to use our resources to address their needs. Isn't that closer to what we see actually going on in the New Testament when it comes to the giving of money by believers? Do you see much of that today? Having said all that, please don't think that I'm disregarding the fact that we are to do good to all men. Here's something in Jesus' own example that I find instructive and helpful when it comes to determining which of the needs outside the body of Christ he might have us meet. Whose hurts did Jesus heal when he was here? Everybody's? No, he healed the hurts of those whose paths he crossed and in most cases those who sought him out. And I believe there's a very good case to be made that those whose physical afflictions he healed were those who either directly acknowledged him as God's Messiah or whose friends or loved ones that brought them to him acknowledged him as God's Messiah. I've often heard certain missionaries speak about people of peace (laughs) and their 
talking about people who, even though they may not yet believe in Jesus Christ, are sympathetic and kind toward his people. And their ears are more open than the average person. It seems to me that those are good ones to start with when we have resources to apply outside the body of Christ, whether it's individually or corporately. And by the way, I believe the overwhelming majority of what we do as believers in giving to those outside the body should be a function of the body, of the local body as a whole, not of individuals. And I don't have time to develop that, but give it some thought. When should you not give to the poor? (laughs) Some would say never. But the fact is, uh, Proverbs has a whole lot to say about this, about when people should not be helped. I'm just going to read these passages and then again kind of take them in in mass. (laughs) Proverbs 6, verses 9 through 11. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Proverbs 10, verses 3 and 4. The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but He will thrust aside the craving of the wicked. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 14, 23. In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Proverbs 19.15, laziness casts into a deep sleep and an idle man will suffer hunger. Proverbs 20, verse 4, the sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. 20, verse 13, do not love sleep lest you become poor. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with food. 21, I don't have this one up. 21, verses 25 to 26. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. All right. There are others. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. I love that one. (laughs) Now, I don't want to spend a bunch of time analyzing those passages Because we're going to look in a later message in this series at what Proverbs has to say about hard work and laziness. But I want to make sure we get the big picture here. For those who are lazy and self-indulgent, poverty is the God-ordained consequence of their choices. Now that's not talking at all about those who are unable to earn a sufficient income to meet their needs. It's talking about the sluggard. In Proverbs 10, verses 3 and 4 that we saw early in that sequence, it says, The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he will thrust aside the craving of the wicked. And who is it that's defined as wicked in the parallel second verse of that passage? It's the one who works with a negligent hand. And then it says the diligent, the hand of the diligent makes rich. We tend to excuse laziness as a mark of immaturity. And we think, eh, immaturity, eh, people work through that and they get better. So let's be patient. You know what God calls laziness in an adult? He calls it wickedness. God intends for able-bodied adult men and women to labor diligently. And when they don't, he calls them, he doesn't just merely call them foolish, he calls them wicked. 
And that particular form of wickedness very decisively short-circuits a man's usefulness to God in the lives of others. See, God's intention is that we labor diligently so that we have enough not just for our needs, but to be useful to God to meet the needs of others. If we're able, that's what we're supposed to be doing. 2 Thessalonians 3, I'm just going to read verse 10. Paul says, even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Is that direct enough for you? God holds the lazy man or woman accountable for his laziness, and he declares very clearly that the reason that man is poor is because he is lazy. We're not called by God to facilitate the sin and foolishness of others in the name of compassion. It's not compassionate. The compassionate thing to do with such a person if he is a professing believer is call him to repentance, not to give him more money. And there's a very intriguing passage in 1 Timothy 5 on the topic of giving material assistance to widows within the church that I just want to give a little attention to here. It says, honor widows, 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 8, honor widows who are widows indeed. And as it goes on, it explains that the one who is the widow indeed is the one who has been left alone. In other words, her family either doesn't have the means to support her or doesn't have the will to support her. It also says that such a woman is one who has her hope fixed on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. You know who's, who God's designated instrument is to make sure the needs of that woman is met are met? Us. His church. Now, if she has a family with the ability to support her, her material needs, then God's clear expectation, according to this passage, is that her family will do just that. She doesn't have any control over that. A professing believer who refuses to, to take care of a widow within his own family, this passage says, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. When there are people in our midst who indeed suffer a lack of material provision, provision that we take for granted for ourselves, then we had better be addressing those needs. If we don't, we're violating the very character of God. Now, what if you misinterpret the motives... <laughs> of someone who appears to be needy and you find out you got scammed. I'll bet if I asked for a show of hands, everybody would know what that feels like. Very recently, I was with my own family uh, at a restaurant. It was the first time in a while we had both the kids together to go out to eat. And as we were leaving the restaurant, a, a young, well-dressed, you know, very well-kempt young man walked up to me and he, he said, look, my car is broken down. It's at the shop right up the street. He told me the name of the shop. I knew the shop. And he said, I had this amount of money, but I didn't have quite enough to pay for the repair. And if I don't get it repaired, I can't even get to work. And they said they can finish it today. And so he told me how much money it was. And I gave him the money, and he seemed very grateful for it. You probably know what happened next. As he walked across the parking lot in the direction of that shop, he stopped at the next human being and gave him the same pitch. And that guy gave him money too. <laughs> I decided not to make a scene <laughs> because, again, it was the first time I'd been with Deb and the kids together for a while and I knew it could get messy. It would have been real easy just to refuse to help the guy right up front because I'd been scammed so many times before. 
I took a chance because I kind of gave the guy the benefit of the doubt and I got bitten. How long did I agonize about that? About five seconds. I believe God wants us to be cautious and shrewd to try to avoid facilitating another person's sin, but when you misjudge the other guy's motives, don't lose any sleep over it. God cares far more, far more, God cares far more about your heart than he does about your accuracy. <laughs> Prayerfully ask him for wisdom when someone approaches you for financial or any other kind of aid. Be thoughtful about applying God's resources in a manner that complies with his priorities. That means king first, kingdom second. But most fundamentally, be quick to treat others as God has treated you. If your assessment of the other guy's motives turns out to be wrong, but you acted toward him as God has acted toward you, you showed him compassion and grace and kindness because that's the way God has dealt with you, then you got it right at the most fundamental level, even if you got some things wrong. God cares about our heart. Jesus taught us not only to love our neighbors, but to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who mistreat and even persecute us. Matthew 5:44 and Luke 6, 27 to 28. When we do that, we can be assured that some will take our kindness as another opportunity to sin. But the reason we showed them compassion and grace and kindness anyway is very simple. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners and even enemies of God, Christ died for us. Our, our care for the poor and downcast is not supposed to be a labor of guilt. It's supposed to be a labor of love. It's an overflowing toward other human beings of our gratitude to God for making us the objects of His superabundant grace when we deserved only wrath. In that passage in 1 John 3, look at the appeal. We know love by this that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He says, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. The appeal here is not do this and you will become loving. The appeal is if you have truly reckoned with how God has loved you, you will not cling to money and stuff. You'll see it as an instrument to pass the love of God on to others. If you have no yearning to show real, tangible compassion and mercy to others, the solution to that problem is not for you to grudgingly pry the money out of your wallet and give it away to somebody. The solution is for you to fall down before God and reckon with who He is and what He has done, most especially what He has done for you in Jesus Christ. Then, nobody will have to tell you to love and care for others to put your heart and your dollars into serving those around you. Love is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets because love doesn't have to be told to do things God's way. Loving Father, we pray for that heart. We know you've given us more 
than abundant cause to want to show your love to other people in very tangible ways. Above all, Lord, to show men the greatest act of love in all of history, the death of Jesus Christ in the place of sinful men, to pay the penalty that we could never pay. We ask that you would give us an earnest desire to see lost men come to know the one who is real life. And then that we, Lord, would be zealous and eager to see everything you put in our hands as as an instrument to invest in eternity in your agenda, that we would cling to none of it, that we would be vessels useful in your hands. For Jesus' sake, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.